Welcome to the Inspired Journeys podcast, where I have conversations with people who make a big impact on Jewish life. We will talk about their life's journeys and how they came to where they are today. There is so much that we can learn from their stories, dedication, and perseverance. In my first episode, I will be talking with Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak Zaltzman, the founder and director of the JRCC, the Jewish-Russian Community Center. The JRCC is a network of centers for the Jewish-Russian community across Ontario. In part one, we will be discussing Rabbi Zaltzman's childhood years in Russia. Rabbi Zaltzman was born in Russia in 1956 in the city of Dushanbe. At the age of 10 months, he moved to Samarkand, where he lived until leaving Russia in 1971. He also spent summers by his grandparents in Moscow. His parents and grandparents had great self-sacrifice raising their children as proud religious Jews. Indeed, from the age of seven, Rabbi Zaltzman was kept home in order to not have to go to the atheistic schools of the era. Join us as we discover what it meant to grow up as a proud religious Jew in a place and time where to do so required great self-sacrifice. Welcome, Rabbi Zaltzman. Thank you so much for, for agreeing to, to be interviewed and to discuss um, your childhood, how you grew up, how you got to where you are today. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the family roots of, of where they came from before they went to Samarkand, like your father, your grandfather. My father's family comes from Smargon. My grandfather, Avram Zaltzman, is from the city of Smargon. Um, he grew up in a traditional family. We have pictures of his parents and grandparents with beard and shaitlach, but they were not Chabad. He, in the age of 11, traveled to the city of Lubavitch and was accepted in the Cheder of Lubavitch and then in the Yeshiva. There were 11 kids, and then there came the revolution, and unfortunately, from the whole family, Yiddishkeit-wise, almost no survivors and the Zayda, one of 11 kids is the only one who stayed uh, Yiddishkeit with his children and grandchildren and grand-grandchildren as you're part of them <laughs> they spread the Yiddishkeit all over the world so that's my grandfather my father's mother was Brocha Pevsner she comes from a Lubavitch family her brother was the Chazer by the Rebbe Rashab Avram Boruch Pevsner was one of the Chazen by the Rebbe Rashab. And the Pevsner family comes from Chsidim, as far as we know, from Chsidim of the Alter That's They were Chsidim, so to speak, older generations. So that's the grandmother of uh, my father's mother. My mother's father is Yude Kulashe, Yude Botarashvili, he's a Georgian Jew. I grew up, he was born in the small place, uh, Kulashi, uh, traditional family, religious family. He had one sister, Rosa, who later came to Israel. Uh, my grandfather was sent, went to the previous Rebbe in 1922. My father's father came to Lubavitch to the Rebbe Rashab in 1911. My mother's father in 1922, he was 15 years old came to the Rebbe Rashab to learn, to the Friedrich Rebbe to learn in Rostov. He was sent to Rostov by Shmuel Levitin, who was a shliach of the Rebbe Rashab in 
Georgia, and he was Niskarev, and his parents agreed. He was only son. They had a daughter and a son. They agreed to send him to Rostov. I think the second time they saw him was for his wedding in Neville. And that's how my grandfather became a Lubavitcher Hasid. His wife, Batsheva Chaim, is a daughter, the youngest daughter of Mayor Simcha Chaim, that a family of Lubavitcher Hasidim since the Alter Rebbe. The first one was the Peretz Chaim, it was a Hasid by the Alter Rebbe. Um, in 1927, when, when Meir Simcha was by the, by the Friedrich Rebbe in Leningrad, he told him, did you marry all your kids? And he said, no, I still have my youngest daughter not married, but Sheva. So the Rebbe Friedrich Rebbe told him, okay, so in, uh, in your city, in Neville, in Yeshiva, there is a Bacher Yudah And I think it's a good Shidduch. So Meir Simcha reacted, a Gruziners, I'm uh, Geza from generations. So the Rebbe said, you'll go to Neville, go and look the way he davens. Okay, he left the Yechidas, and on the train, going to Neville back home, he started to think to himself, says Ashidach, you ask fr- friends, educated friends, who will be able to advise it's a good or not. He says, the biggest friend that I have is the Rebbe. The most educated man that I could ever dream of is the Rebbe. The Rebbe suggests me Ashidach, and I'm asking questions. What am I, crazy? Anyway, by the time he came home, he came home to Neville, my grandmother, Batsheva, his daughter, happened to be the one who opened the door. He comes in and tells her, Mazel Tov. She says, Tata, what's the Mazel Tov? He says, you're a Kala. She says, I'm a Kala? The Hosan, I, I never heard that I'm a Kala. He says, the Rebbe suggested to me a Hosan, I'm right now going to Yeshiva to speak to Yudo Eber to introduce me to the Hosan. Yudo Eber was then the Rosh Yeshiva in Neville in 1927. So, and before he left, he took out, gave her a few rubles. He says, here, go buy yourself a, a new piece of material. And, uh, and they didn't have the money, I guess, to buy, or there was not proper clothes to be able to buy in store, not sneers. He told her, here is money for material. Go and sew yourself a new dress. So you will have it for when you have to go out to be the host. And he went to Yeshiva. He didn't take off any clothes, nothing. As he came from this, right away we went to Yeshiva and asked you the Eber, who is you the Kalasha? He showed it to him. So he told him right away, okay, well, how is you the final Bokha? So he says, please bid my Shatchan. Tell him that uh, Meir Simcha is offering him a Shidduch with his younger daughter, Batsheva. And that's how the Shidduch came. So how did the family move to, to Samarkand? Okay, 1941, when the war started with, uh, with Germany, was the Nazis were coming close to Kharkov. But that time, my father, my father, my grandfather, and three of his kids, they lived in Kharkov. Now, the Nazis were coming to Ukraine. 
So they took off and they traveled to run away from the Nazis and they came to the city of Samarkand. That was a safe haven because it was far from this and it was a war in place. So it was easier to survive because they came there with no money, with no clothing, with nothing. And that's how they, they came to Samarkand. When the war was over, my grandfather made a decision that it's better for Yiddish guy to stay in Samarkand than to go back to Kharkov. Was it mainly Chassidim? Was there a mix of all different refugees from all, all, all corners? Yeah, for sure. In time of the war, there were Polish Jews. Everybody from Russia was were fleeing there. But then in 45, 46, when Stalin gave permission to Polish Jews to go back to Poland, they all left. So whoever was stuck in Samarkand is the Russian Jews. I mean, my grandfather also was planning to leave with the people who left Russia in 1946. But by the time he had the papers and everything, and I think they were ready to move, they got a telegram from Lvov that the trip on vacation is delayed. Means the people were arrested and don't come to Lvov because you'll end up in jail. So he did not manage them to go out. Because there was many groups that were going. At the beginning, it was quiet. Then people find out. Then they have to make decisions. Then you have to get organized. Anyway, so we were stuck in Russia. My grandfather was stuck in Russia from 46 till 69. But he left Russia. And we left Russia in 71. So growing up in Samarkand, was it um, mainly Lubavitch of Sinem? Or were, did you mix with the, Svar the Svartikilo? Bukharian Jews, sure, because we were also Makarev, the Bukharian Jews. They learned in our yeshivas, they're coming to Armenia, they were coming to our Fablengians, the ones who were ready. How did you um, end up in Dushanbe? Okay, so my father in 1954 was going to Moscow to buy some equipment for their business. In order to keep Shabbos in Russia, you had to do something on your own because otherwise there was uh, six days that they go Shabbos, you also had to work. So they created a business that was uh, printing labels, for instance, you know, on a shirt, on every garment, you have a label. So their job was they were printing labels. And in Russia, the seder was that anything that was produced in Russia, for instance, a, a, a tractor, a car. So there was, in one city, they made one part, in the other city, a different part, and the fifth city was the assembly, and so on. So the people who made shirts couldn't make the labels. The labels were done in a different part. That's how they kept all Russia together, not to give them a chance, even the possibility of thinking to separate. That's what I understand. So my father, for instance, got an order of two million labels to make. Now they gave the equipment. With their equipment, you could make six labels in one. It was it was uh, it was a material. In it was this, and you had to do uh, ink with a with a rubber. You have to go through the ink on this. When it's lying on a piece of on a piece of cloth, it printed. Then you have to pick it up take the cloth away, take the next piece of cloth, put it on the table and put the, it's called matrix, put the square piece that there is the text. And again, take with the ink and push it with your hands and then you print another six labels. But the idea here was that there was no hours. 
they paid for peace, whatever a point of ascent. And by making the so as many labels you managed to do, you were paid. But there was a limit how much you could make. Now there was another problem. Whereas the Shabbos is one problem. There was another problem that boys from different cities came to learn. Now they in Russia, in other if you're in a different city, you have to register yourself that you're living now here. You move from Moscow to Samarkand, you have to go in Samarkand to the authorities to register. Now, in order to register, you have to see what you're doing. Either you're in school, university, or you work. What are you doing in town? Bochrim, who came to learn. How, what should we say? We came to learn in the underground yeshiva. We can't say we learn in university. Which university? We can't say we're going to work. Which work? What are you doing? So it was a problem. They were illegal. There was a danger. They go on the streets. Somebody catches them, answers them. Where do you live? Who are you? It's your passport. Lost. That's it. It's being arrested. Uh, we had boys living in our house. We we're underground yeshiva. My mother always said that the, the hardest part, she had to not just uh, give them the dining room and living room to sit and learn. She had to cook for them three times a day, wash their clothes, and provide them with meals and a place to they live. This was the dorm in the yeshiva, the same the same house. It was no different building. It was in our house. <coughs> and she remembered, she said many times, the hardest part was when, when one of the boys was sick and she couldn't take him to the doctor because she had to show him who he is, who, who is he. And she couldn't. So she used to go to the doctor and says, my son, my daughter shows this and this symptoms. What do you think I should do? What should I give him? They said, bring your child, we'll, uh, we'll assess him. She says, no, it feels too bad, too hard. It's schlep him, it's cold, it's this, it's that. It's not ready to go, the child. Tell me, what do we do with this and this symptoms? That's how she used to take care of the boys because she would be taken to the doctor. Anyway, so this solution, they came up that you could make not six labels in one time, but 30 labels, 60 labels in one time. Two piece, they came up with, the, they improved the technology. And this way, in order, they knew that a person with their style of work could produce only so much. But they made it five times as much. So now they could put, uh, German actually was working and he was able to keep Shabbos because he did it in the hours that he wants. Morning, afternoon, Sundays, no Shabbos, no Yonta. But we'll be able to register another four boys, of yeshiva boys, that they officially are working, producing. But they were sitting in learning ago. They didn't have to spend time on it because one guy managed to do the work of five. So four boys were registered as they work. And first of all, they got papers. Second of all, they got paid something. So they had also some money in the pocket and they could also help the yeshiva to the whole operation of the yeshiva. So anyway, so in 54, my father was going to Moscow to buy some material. Now, Berkechein, who is my mother's cousin, he is a son of Perezchein, who is my grandmother's Batsheva, older brother. So he was my mother's cousin. He stayed in Samarkand and the Russian authorities were looking for him. He was hiding in the house by Avroma Brachasalsman, my father's house. So when he heard that the, my father is traveling to Moscow, so he told him, I have a cousin in Moscow. 
I have an ant in Moscow, Yudha Kolashev and Batsheva Chaim, and they have a few daughters, they have five daughters, and therefore this is where you're going to stay, and in Hashem, you'll have a shiva. So my father came to Moscow, met my mother, and they made the chasana in Moscow. And shortly after that, there was a suggestion in Dushanbe, there was an offer of business to make a few rubles. Uh, similar printing things on, uh, on, on, uh, on the, what is it called, on the window, blinds, on the blinds, on blinds, to, to produce blinds with a nice uh, uh, colored flowers, design. And also tablecloth. And that's what they went to Dushanbe. But they went to Dushanbe, two couples, my father and mother, and David Mishalovin and Sarah Peel. Sarah Peel is my father's first cousin. And David Mishalovin was actually my father's Schwager's brother, because Ellen Mishalovin was married to my aunt, Sarah, Sarah Zaltzman. Today in Krachovat, you have Glochovsky. His wife, Rachel, is my first cousin. Her, her mother is a Zaltzman and the father is a Mishalovin. Each Mishalovin in Kron Heights, there were four brothers. The second brother was my uncle, was married to us. Anyway, they were, they were cousins and, and craving. So these two couples went to Dushanbe together. They were there for a year and a half. The business didn't work. They came back. I was born in Dushanbe because I was uh, was that was the time when, when my mother gave birth to me. By the way, being in Dushanbe, there was no mikvah in Dushanbe. Is there a kehila? There was a community. There was a community. Jews. I mean, there was actually even a synagogue, a small synagogue of Bukhara Jews and a small synagogue of of, uh, of uh, Ashkenazi Jews, but there was no mikvah in town. So summertime, they used to use the river in town. So when my mother needed the river, so Sarah went with her. When Sarah needed the river, my mother to go to the mikvah. And the husband of, of that one who had to go to the mikvah was, had to be not far because it was a beach at night. It was dangerous for two young ladies to be there alone. Anyway, but then came winter and the river froze. There was no way, so they took a plane to Samarkand or Tashkent to go to the Mikvah. But the, the price of the flight was uh, more than a half a salary, a monthly salary. So they were struggling what to eat the other half of the month. The mailer, usually they start using the train. The train at that time cost them, I think it was four or eight rubles. <clears throat> from Dushanbe to Samarkand, but the train went one way at 1,500 kilometers far. So the train would stop. The train was going one way 36 hours, a day and a half. Not 24 hours, 36 hours one way. You come in the morning to Samarkand, in the evening you go to the Mikwe, and next day you go back to the train who takes you 36 hours back to Dushanbe. So you were born from a great act of Mesir's Nefesh. Well, yeah, that was in that time. That's correct. 
my father says my mother was going to make but he was my babysitter he couldn't work for three days four days till she comes back anyway that was uh, that was life then in the end they managed to build a mikvah there before they left they actually built the mikvah the ashkenazi shul was afraid the Bukharer told them you have permission to use that back room we never gave you permission we don't know you so they built an amikva, and actually I have now Jews, Bukhari and Jews who came from Dushanbe, from that city. They're here today in Toronto. They said, yeah, the amikva is there. And they, a few years ago, they actually, one guy was involved, brought kafel, made it nicer because when my father built it in, in 1956, it was simple beton. It wasn't any beauty. So they put over their kafel, you know, made it nicer. The amikva is, is being used till today. So was it Shaykh to go to show or, or, the, or you, you, you had to go to underground show? No, no, we, there was no way to go to show. To go to show in show was always, uh, so to speak, uh, Russian informers. Uh, the only way to do is we had the minion at home, in private homes, and we used to change that minion every week, every other week we changed. Uh, even when I was in Moscow by my other grandfather, my father, my mother's parents, so on Shabbos, we also didn't go to shul. Uh, even it was very cold and windy, we had a minion in our house. My grandfather continued to go to shul. I actually helped him walk to shul. And then I walked back home. Why did he walk to shul? Because when he is in shul, then nobody will be suspicious. Maybe he has a minion at home. So in order to make it for the younger people more safe, the minion, so he had to walk to show even it wasn't easy. So the yeshiva was all the years in your house? The yeshiva was, my house is only one place. It wasn't the only place. So Makanda was in many homes of years. My grandfather, his house had a yeshiva. Hilke's also, my uncle had a yeshiva in his house. We had in our house. And there were a few more places. And we were changing a lot of times the places. Because the yeshiva means in the morning, the boys had to get together. So it's neighbors saw something is, somebody's gathering. Even so, we didn't go together. We made it space-wise, but still. So it was very healthy to have it a few weeks here and then a few weeks somewhere else. And then back uh, and so on. How often did you go to, um, to Moscow? Uh, usually summers-wise. Summers-wise, I used to be there. Uh, my parents were took a vacation and they went to the Carpatans, so I stayed with my grandparents. And was the and, community uh, in Moscow very different than Samarkand? Oh, yeah. Sure. Moscow, first of all, is huge, and the Anash were spread. They weren't living all together. So on, on a Shabbos, there was no way to meet. The only way for them to meet was on a Yudus Kisla for Brengen and Yudus Tamos for Brengen. So they all decided where the Fabrengen is and they all traveled. So they were traveling for hours to, to get from one end to another end. I remember as a kid, I was under my bar mitzvah and to our house used to come a Jew, a young man who was working in the atom energy in Russia. He was a very big scientist. But he started to come from, and I remember he, 
in terms for Shabbos and Friday, whatever he wanted to put on film, he didn't know how. I was on the bar mitzvah, and I remember I hoped to put on film in Moscow, in Malachovke. That's we're talking in 1968. I was 12, 11, something like that. Uh, then he came, he was living in Boston. He's a very famous, he was a genius, uh, brilliant head, but somehow, I don't remember exactly who was the first connection to him. I think it was my uncle, Misha Katsanelomaya, who later lived in London. Uh, and I remember to our house, and my grandfather wasn't home, no, no adults were home, so he wanted to put on film, so I founded the house of Fed of Film, helped him to put on film. Uh, I remember also in Moscow, sukkahs, people used to travel to my grandfather to come because we had the sukkah in the house to come to make a brachalash of the sukkah because uh, they lived in apartment buildings. There was no way to have a sukkah there. So how did you find Bachram for the yeshivas? Like, how did they find out about the yeshivas? Well, there was the locals from Samarkand, but then uh, my uncle, if you read the book of Samarkand, you see my uncle and others uh, traveled to Russia. They were collecting Ksovim, Bichlach of Ksovim of Ksidas to bring to center the Rebbe. And uh, Bochrim and, and Mishpokas who are looking for some Yiddishkeit. We had in our house Bochrim from Moscow, from the Karpatan. One summer, my father went to Karpatan for vacation. So he met a few traditional families, and after a while, their boys came, came to us, and they learned by us in, in, uh, in Samarkand, in our yeshiva. Wow. Today, yeah. one of them lives in Williamsburg, one of them lives in Bnei Brak, whatever. But uh, the Yiddishkeit started in our house in yeshiva. They lived in our house. Was there Dmei Chinuch? Any expectation that the parents should, should, should contribute to the yeshiva? Parents. I don't think so. The parents, in many cases, had no clue where the child is because it was danger. If the parents, if the uh, authorities, let's say, arrest the parents, says, where is your son? Where is your son? Where is he staying? What is he doing? So if the father doesn't know where his son is, it's... And so was the policy. So... The children were writing letters to the parents and they wrote it on an envelope and that envelope was put in a different envelope. And on the different envelope, somebody put the address of the parents and the return address of the guy who sends the letter. So they had no clue. And usually we did it even from a different city. They shouldn't even know the city where the child is. They trusted the people that said, okay, but the child is going to Yeshiva. So they trusted the child, but they, they had no right, they had no way even to come and visit them because it was, we, we, we never told them where the child is. Was Samarkand the okay. only place with Yeshivas? No, actually in Samarkand in 1970, I remember my class fell apart. My cousin, Yosker Shlomo Stroll, uh, Whatever there was the class of teachers fell apart. So I remember I traveled, I was in Tashkent for a couple of months. Yud Shvata Godl, I was in Tashkent. I was learning in, uh, I stayed with one of Nash family, David Gurevich. And I learned in a different house. There was everyday traveling there. With Sirota? No, 
was a actually my teacher was Velvul Sirota was in uh, in my class. Yes, Velvul was in my class, and his brother-in-law Yosef Valovic, who's originally from Samarkand, but he got married with Velvul's sister, so he moved to Tashkent. He was one. He was my teacher. When you were slave. living in Russia, what did you know about the Rebbe? Like, did you have a recording? Did you have my modem? Did you have a video? Did you have anything? No, I never saw a video. I knew that the Rebbe is in New York, in America. We once got the picture, so we saw the Rebbe's picture. The picture that I saw was the Rebbe in the Gidalopi base, you know, standing by the office with the seat in the hand, standing. Of that famous picture, that was the picture that I saw in Russia. That was the only picture that I ever saw. I remember once on the Simchas somebody came over to me and says, quietly, you want to taste, you want to see Lukhan and the Rebbe's mashke. That was in our house in Samarkand. And I said, for sure. So he gave me a little, he took out from his pocket a little bottle. <coughs> Later I learned this was Smirnov. And I remember the mashke smelled like a like uh, orange, because we were used to smelling the Russian mashka was much, much more tougher. Uh -huh. This was more refined, so it smelled like something Grenade. Like, this is vodka. This is like something holy from Grenade came. That was I remember. Sadlachaim and the Rebbe's mashka was once a simple state. Uh, otherwise, I remember my father once traveled to Tashkent when Binyamin Katz was in Russia. I think it was Chovol. 1966, that I was sent. So he did not make it to Samarkand, but he's even in Tashkent. So when Anash found out, I remember my father a few more in July traveled to Tashkent to see him. And uh, did they bring? Did they bring back anything? Like, did they, did they have any Maimorim, any sex? They brought no Maimorim. I don't remember Nigunim. They brought Nigunim. I remember Shir Samecho Nigunim. New Nigunim for the Rebbe. Hayim Yim. Came, but Yim uh, Yim came in Samarkand only one copy. So anybody who wanted sat down with a pen and a pencil and Koshat wrote the Yim Yim by hand. Wow. Uh, also, say for my modern Yiddish, I hazard the mimer of my bar mitzvah, the first mimer, uh, the first mimer, and the second mimer is a new Shane Bugaluste. Sefer Maramidish, two memoriams. So I got the Sefer Maramidish in my house for a couple of days, and I had to copy it myself on um, handwriting. And then from there, I learned the Mimer Balpeh. How did you get Sforim, like even Gemaris, Sidurim, anything like that for the yeshiva? We had old Sforim from before the revolution. We had in the house Shahs, we had a lot of Sforim. But Tanya, but that was printed before the revolution, old Sforim. <clears throat> New Sforim was very hard. Filat Hashem. I remember from my bar mitzvah, I got Filat Hashem. I had to learn Tanya Balpe in order to get it. It was, it was not simple to, to get it. Uh, but when they came, so the front page would say Brooklyn Lubavitch was ripped out from the city. And before the Tilim was also ripped out because over there said Lubavitch America. So anywhere that it, so when somebody catches it, looks like fresh, but I don't know where it's printed. It doesn't have anything. That pages of where it's printed it were out. When you grew up, did you go to the Russian schools? 
<clears throat> no, I didn't. My friends did not send me to school. No, that's a whole story, a big story. Uh, when I was uh, six years old, my parents sat me down and said, uh, we want you to continue in Yeshiva. We don't want you to go to school. I said, okay, mask it. But it looked like I understood they want something. It was verstanden what? No problem. I'm ready to go to Yeshiva. I'm not going to Russian school. He said, no, no. In order to do that, you have to disappear. I said, disappear? How do you do that? The dust, the dust, and the, the, you're not to be seen. You see, it's very simple. If you live in our house, the school, the, this street, we know which school you have to go. They're all expecting you there. And if you don't come, they're going to come look for you. So we're going to tell them that you went to Moscow to the other grandparents. You live in Moscow. But in order that they should believe it means from school starts in September till end of June, Nobody in the street is allowed to see you. So it means if somebody rings the bell, you cannot go open the door. If you're in a room and the window is open, if there's no shade, you cannot walk into that room. Nobody is allowed to know that you're in town. To this point that they changed my name, but in the house, in the front, in the courtyard, you know, somebody calls the name, Yossel. So the neighbors knew my name because I was existing there before, and then I disappeared. So how can they hear all of a sudden somebody calls him if he's in Moscow? It's too far to call him. It's 5,000 kilometers away. So they changed my name. The same thing, Yoske Mishlova, my cousin, his name was changed. They changed the name that in the house, they used a different name to call us. It was C. Bellis and C. Ellis. Instead of Yoske, it became a C. Ellis means Yoske Mishalovin, whose father is Eli, and he was C. Bellis, means my father is <laughs> Bellis, was the nickname. We did that since the age basically of seven, seven and eight, uh, almost till Bar Mitzvah. It was six years sitting under house arrest, 10 months a year. And what happened by Bar Mitzvah? Uh, before the bar mitzvah, you finished elementary school and you could start going to high school. So high school, you didn't have to go to the school of your neighborhood. High school, you could choose which school in town you want to go. So therefore, the neighbors knew that I'm going to high school in a different neighborhood. So in the morning, seven o'clock and seven thirty eight when everybody was going to school i was leaving the house also with a school bag like everybody else and i walked two blocks and then i turned into a to a house where this there was the shiva the name was lerner uh in 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 lives his son yankel lerner there was Meshka Lerner lives in Nachlas Chabad. So their father was Herschel Lerner. And in their house, we had a yeshiva. So I was in the morning leaving the house. Everybody saw I'm going to school. And then three o'clock, I used to come back uh, for, uh, for lunch. And then I went back to Luremberg already without the school bag. Wow, that's incredible. That's so you were under house arrest for six years. Like people are complaining now that there's a lockdown for a month. 
That's hard for them. Oh, I said it. I said it to the people. The lockdown is a joke because I could stay by the window. I could be on my porch. I could do a Zoom meeting and so on and so forth. So combined times, there was no Zoom. I couldn't be by the window. I couldn't be by the door. Very simple. My parents went to a bar mitzvah in town. I couldn't go. I had to stay home. <clears throat> the most painful piece I remember there was Simcha State and Night was Simcha State and Night was in our house of Coppers. Simcha State Day was by Shmuel Notik. He's today the rabbi in Chicago. Shmuel Notik. They lived a, like a block and a half from my house. And we knew the next day, our coffers, the whole davening, the whole Simcha State of Abraham is going to be there. And I obviously planned to be there. How can I miss it? But after our coffers, we had Subas Yalta. And then we went to sleep. So it was probably one or two o'clock at night. And six was already getting light. And the plan was I had to leave my house before there's light on the street. And I could put on my hat something, a hat, things that even if a neighbor who knows me passes by, it's dark, he wouldn't be able to recognize me. And even if somebody would call my name, I would make myself that I'm scared and I would run away from him like, a, like somebody's trying in the dark attack me. So the middle, nobody would ever realize that it's me. But the problem is that the time I opened the eyes, there was already light in the window. And I know that's it. And I know that I'm not going anywhere. I didn't even ask. I was a child, but I knew that this is serious. This is, I'm not going anywhere. So my father, mother, all the kids, like everybody went to our coffers. And at that time, our coffers for bringing was a whole day. And I stayed home. <clears throat> and at that time, our coffers, Simcha Stere Day means lockdown. And they made a kiddush, back Mokshach, it's 11 in the morning. And the Fabrenia was almost till six in the evening. And only when they said, oh, it's getting late. I'm without Benchen, I'm without I'm without Because the whole day for Fabrenia and Baxidian was the lifeline to everything. So Bemela, Simcha Steyre, a day that we're all sitting together, so the niche for Black is Fim Fazeger, Gangen Aheim, Essensudus Yonder, for Black bees the Shkia. And the Sud is given up there. So my mother, during the day, my mother came a few times to visit me. I had what to eat, but my problem was that there is a coffee in Simcha Steyre there, and I'm missing all the fun. That's a painful moment that I remember once Simcha Steyre like this. Wow. That's unbelievable. Before my bar mitzvah, I remember they wanted me to, I wanted to go to the mikvah. So I remember my father and Nietzsche got a taxi and late at night, we took a taxi, went to a place that there is a mikvah and the table then. But Gishamal was, belonged to Rufol Chudaidatov, Moshiach Chudaidatov's fathers. Uh, in his courtyard, he had a mikvah. That's when we went to the mikvah before my bar mitzvah. All the women went there, or the men and the women had separate mikvahs? Uh, basically, I think the mikvahs were the same, but I guess that's why I went two o'clock at night, not eight to nine in the evening, because that's when the, probably the woman went. I was, uh, I was a kid, 
I remember only it was midnight. So actually, I now I'm thinking why it was a midnight. That's probably because it was used in the beginning of the night. They only went there when they knew already that the liquids already free. Nobody's there. Right. Did you have like a hope the whole time that you'd be able to leave Russia? Or yeah, that was the dream. Every time for Blaine and every time it was said Lachaim, the bunch was that before your son should have to go to school, so I'm already in the slow. And later was able to leave Russia. My father, if you would give him a chance to walk Russia to Israel, walk, not drive, not a bicycle, walk, he would be ready to go. Wow. Because the life in Russia, especially somebody who wants to give the children was, 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 was hell, hell on earth. And you were probably, was there a lot of uh, boys like that, or you were probably one of the only ones who, who literally stayed home for? for well, there was a life? few. My cousin, Oscar Mishalovi, and Benny Mishalovi, and David Mishalovi, and so on. It was a few, but very few. <clears throat> I remember somebody said to my father, what are you doing? You're holding a yeshiva in the house? Don't you understand that you're putting in danger yourself, but not only yourself? Can you imagine if they arrest you because you have an yeshiva, so your children will be sent to government schools. They'll be taken away ownership. You lose ownership from the kids. <coughs> and they'll grow up going. You don't care about your kids? How do you allow a yeshiva in your house? In order for that you should not be arrested, go to jail, and your children will grow up without parents, you're not allowed to have a yeshiva in your house. So my father remembered and said, so you have it all wrong. He says, I have a yeshiva in my house for my children. So to what else can I give my children something? I can't take them to show them a shul. I can't take them to show them a yeshiva. It doesn't exist. And even if it exists, how can I take them that it's dangerous? The only way if I want my children to grow up in the Yiddish environment, the Yiddish environment, I brought the yeshiva to my house. You know that my kids should grow up Hasidic. I remember actually once my, uh, he was also a teacher of mine, older Hasid, the Lord of the Rebbe Rashad. So one time, by Farbrengen, told to my father, Doctor, why are you holding your son at home? I mean, you're not the only Hasid. There are many, and their children go to school. Go to school. On Shabbos, they don't go to school. But during the week, they go to school. You keep a child in the house under house arrest. He's a child with energy. He's going to grow up crazy. He's going to approach it. It's a tie, stark time. It's a painful time, especially telling to a father who's, who's between a hard ball and <laughs> like, what do you want him to do? And my father calmly answered him. Besser home are cranky eat the gesunter Wow, that's powerful. That's what he answered to Dolder Hossi. Dolder Hossi closed his mouth. He, he couldn't, he didn't expect it from Ingermanchik. I mean, my father then was under 30 years old, Ingermanchik. And what, he didn't see Rabbeim, he grew up in Russia underground. But that was the Mr. establishment to such a level. <clears throat> I remember my chasana, it was in the stroll, and that horse it came to my chasana from Nachta. He traveled especially to my chasana. So I remember somewhere on the chasana, father said, Lachan told them, no. So, uh, so I should have taken you come from New York, from the Rebbe, whatever. So he says, no, so, so he's always given me sugar. So he answered him, so the message is, I said, the message is brachas. 
So the data sagt, for sure, so the Jesus nicht verlost auf mein Seichel. Ich habe das nur getan, weil ich habe gehofft, dass ich es brauche. Wow, that's incredible. I remember that conversation, time of my wedding. Because it was in Israel, we got married in Israel. Barakabad. Thank you so much for listening to part one. Stay tuned for part two.